Take your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 25. While you're turning there, I would remind you, we, uh, we do believe the Scriptures teach, as very clearly they do, that God is the primary author of the Scriptures. Uh, certainly, He uh, wrote through chosen men who were inspired by His Holy Spirit, but God Himself is the author of the Scriptures. He has revealed Himself. And that's important for when we think of the divine author, it means that every service that we get together, in fact, every time we read the Scriptures, the Lord has a message for each of us that was intended for us even this day. And it is a message, first and foremost, about Him and His salvation, and secondly, about us and our need for it. Let us look to God's Word in Numbers 25, for God to provide While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. He's invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. 
And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Let's pray. Lord, your word is always good, for you are good. Your word is always true, for you are always true, and it is always relevant, for you are always relevant. We ask that you would speak, not just in its reading, but in its preaching. For Christ's sake, amen. If you're roughly my age, you can look back on so many of the games that we played when we were children, and it seems like they were specifically designed to send a child to the hospital. I remember when my middle school had to make the rule that we were no longer allowed to play tackle football in the asphalt parking lot. And we were so upset that we were thought about staging a, some sort of protest. We wanted to play tackle football in the asphalt. Perhaps we were not very bright kids. I don't know. But you think it was Red Rover, right? Red Rover, Red Rover, send somebody to get their head chopped off right over. Right? You come running in, get clotheslined and taken out in the neck. King of the Mountain, all right, that one's fun. Let's get the biggest kid on top of a thing very, very high and send all of the little ones after them to get smushed until the big one falls over and breaks their arm. Great game. I remember growing up, though, I was a bit of a late bloomer weight-wise, and so playing King of the Mountain was a very difficult task, right? I mean, you get a big kid up there, one of the beefy ones that starts early, and whoo, boy, it's hard to get him down. Until you learn there's a trick to King of the Mountain, particularly if you're playing on something tall, maybe a chair. I don't know why you would play on top of a chair. It seems like something we would do. The trick was that you didn't always have to push them off. All you needed to know was when to switch from pushing to pulling. That was all you needed to know. To push as hard as you could in the right second, just give one small yank, and they go flying off. And then it's my chance to break my arm. I'll be headed to the hospital in 10 minutes, don't worry. It's a great game because it actually teaches a really important life lesson that so much of life is really made in the make-or-break moment of simply that, that transition from being pushed to pulled. To teach that kind of understanding of of balance and stability, to know that you can't be moved in either direction. And if you played it long enough, you always got those great moments where you caught somebody out. And boy, it was fun to watch. This huge person thinking they've got it made going flying off of whatever you're playing on. But learning even early on as a kid to kind of be aware of those moments in life. The moments where I'm, I'm so braced in one direction that the smallest nudge from the other and I fall over. Numbers chapter 25 
is in some sense one of those chapters. Israel has been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing in one direction the entire book. And the devil provides the slightest little pull and they go flying. So far this book, Israel has been in sin over and over and over again, and it's been this kind of reoccurring complaint against God, largely connected to the food or the difficulty of the life that they have to live. It's been a reoccurring theme, so much so that it's even gotten Moses himself at one point. It's gotten Aaron and Miriam It's gotten basically all of Israel at some point, this idea of complaining about what they want to eat, complaining about how hard life is, and they've learned hard lessons along the way. The ground eating them. (laughs) Fiery serpents biting them and them dying everywhere. All sorts of problems, terrible things, terrible things. And if you're reading this, you're kind of prepping as thinking through reading it all in one go. Like you're, you're just constantly pushing up against this. Like, I, I have to be careful that I'm, I'm not complaining about my food. I, I have to be careful that I'm not complaining about the difficulty of my life. And it's like they're leaning so hard in one direction. And with the assistance of the devil, they get one slight pull. They're off balance, and they go flying. Israel is prepping to enter into the promised land. They've made it out of the wilderness, yay. The entire generation of those that are complaining are dead at this point. You've got a new generation that's in charge. There's only one guy left. He's going to die at the end of this section. Or be told he's going to. It's like a new nation. You have a new hope. Maybe this will be the nation that that doesn't complain these ways. Maybe this will be the nation that's faithful to the Lord. They're not going to be. We already know the answer. But even as they're kind of prepping, there's a, a sense of where they get settled in for a season. And as they begin to settle in, preparing to receive the promises of God, rather than being pushed in the direction they've been prepared for. They get a slight little pull and fall apart. I would be remiss if I didn't kind of give you a heads up. This sermon is entirely a warning sermon because that's what this chapter is. This chapter is a warning to the people of God that sin kills Sin kills, and it kills very quickly sometimes. You see, the thing that starts out here is it's such a simple thing. A nation that's been warned over and over and over again of making a God of their bellies, of of valuing their food and their pleasures, of, of worrying about the difficulty of their life, of traveling around in the desert, of having to walk so far, the challenges of all of that living of, of, of difficulty. Chapter 25, verse 1, a a new source of the good life is introduced. 
Moab. Specifically, the women of Moab. You remember if you trace the lineage back, these are family folk, Lot's descendants between Lot and his daughters. Relatives, but not Jews. Not those from the people of Israel, not those that the people of God are supposed to intermarry with, and you have an entire nation that's kind of, in essence, been warned about elevating their, their, their physical pleasures in regards to their food, and in regards to their work, and in regards to their walking. They're so prepared and focused on those that they totally don't see it coming to be prepared for their sexuality. And they're introduced to a a sexual sin as a nation where their neighbors and the wives begin to look for husbands within the people of God, and you get to see the language that God uses to describe it. Words I don't use in public unless I'm preaching. Boy, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? And the people of God begin to whore with the daughters of Moab. It's sexual sin. They let their bodies and their pleasures and their longings govern their lives. Now, even in this starting point, kind of as, a, as our nation, as a, a people of God living in the time in which we live, we have to kind of pause and really be honest about the time in which we do live. It's easy for us to kind of throw stones at ancient Israel and to say, well, look, they were stupid people and they were bad people. Look how they sinned. The ground ate them and they still complained against God. It's no surprise that they would have sexual sin. It's no surprise that they would fall to pieces. It's no surprise that they would behave such a way. What do you think the history books are going to say about our nation? What do you think the history books are going to say about our time in church history? It's so easy for us to look back on previous eras and to point out their failings. We're Southern Presbyterian. Our forefathers were dead wrong on the issue of race. They were sinful. There's no asterisk to it. There's no footnote to it. They were dead wrong on the issue of race. They didn't understand it. They were evil in the ways they did understand it. They were absolutely unequivocally wrong. You know what? It's easy for me to say that because they're all dead. The problem is that when we're all dead, I suspect those that write the history books are going to say their sexual sin was dead wrong and they didn't deal with it. It was a nation, a church, an era that was in love with perversion. And the church didn't deal with it. Because the church, at points, was part of the problem. It's actually what's happening here. You have a nation that's beginning to compromise 
because their pleasures have taken over. Well, the next thing that happens after is very interesting and very normal. It's very expected. We see it happen all of the time, which is not only does their pleasures begin to dominate their thinking, not only do their pleasures begin to alter their morals, suddenly the people that they love begin to reshape how they see the world. These, these foreign wives, these daughters of Moab, invite the people of Israel to join in the sacrifices to their God, Baal, a God that we actually know a great deal about. We can study in history. He's a false God. He doesn't do anything but was part of a pagan ritual designed to increase the fertility of the land. And so interestingly, Israel's beginning to participate in a fertility cult, a, a, a worshipful act that involves perverted sexuality. On top of that, they're making sacrifices to their God. The people are eating and bowing down to their gods. They're worshiping false gods. The interesting thing, though, that you get to see is the progression. It starts with Israel saying, hey, these women look appealing to these women will make good wives, to these women want to worship Baal, to I will worship Baal. Those that we love have led us into it. This is one of my favorite reverse courses that we get to watch in our politicians. Right? And they'll speak out over and over and over again about something that they despise until their daughter does it or their son does it, and suddenly it's not that bad. Oh, I'm against gay marriage. I'm against gay marriage. I'm against gay marriage. Find out their kid is. Oh, gay marriage is great. It's good for people to love each other. progression is all too common. Where we watch a nation that begins to love their pleasure, that then begins to love their people, that then begins to love their gods. And friends, if that's not a warning to all of us, I've never heard one. If that's not a directly pointed warning to the people of God, I've never heard one. To be on guard for that progression, our desires run amok to join us to people with also broken desires to lead us into idolatry of sinful things. Well, what happens? It's why this warning is so important. 
You know, I mean, again, our culture, so much of it we hear, we'll say, well, as long as it's not hurting anybody, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter who loves who. It's not hurting anybody. As long as it's not, it's not, it's not hurting anyone, we can do whatever we want to do, right? Well, it's missing a tremendous biblical point, friends. That sin kills Sin kills, and it kills in two real ways that we get to see. One is it actually eternally kills. We know this, the wages of sin are death. But this is part of the kind of Old Testament narrative that you need to be reminded that sin kills now also. It doesn't just wait until eternity. It starts now. It's an opportunistic assassin. It goes after you now. The Lord teaches them a lesson, verse 4, explains to them that sin is the problem. The issue is not just behavior. It's not just, hey, this isn't the way that people act. It's not like, oh, this is tacky. Sin kills. It has a, a consequence. God hates it. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang them in the sun. Wow. Oh yeah, wait, hold on. There's one other clause that's important there. Hang them in the sun before the Lord, which is your catchphrase that is almost always used to refer to offerings or sacrifices. The destruction of these men The destruction of their sin, the destruction of their bodies is an offering to the Lord before the people of Israel. Because sin is evil. It's wicked. It's awful. Sin kills, and the Lord makes sure the people of God understand that. So Moses has to give what has to be one of the most bizarre commands that he's given. All right, guys. Each of you, go kill everyone in your group. Let's yoke themselves to the Baal of Peor. Boy, that's a shepherding model I'm thankful we don't have to follow today. We talk about it at session meeting. Elders, make your phone calls to your people. Oh, yeah, by the way, go execute the people who married the Moabites. A lesson presented before the people of God. The idea here, too, we get from 2 Samuel and other places, is their bodies aren't just taken down. They're hung and left So the people of God get to see what sin actually looks like. Friends, this is, I think, another great warning for us. Our culture spends obscene amounts of money on marketing. The marketing of trying to make things look good. The marketing of trying to make sin look like fun for more than the 30 seconds that you do it. The marketing of making a life look joyful that isn't. 
I give one illustration of this. The modern trans movement. We don't bear ill will towards those that are sinning in such a way. We don't hate them. We, we love all of those made in God's image. We're happy to take care of them, but all of the statistics show that becoming trans is the fastest way to lead to suicide in the entire American culture. It's the easiest way to kill yourself because it, the body's not designed to work that way. Your sexuality is written into the very linings of your cells and to try to be something that you're not doesn't work and it kills you. But interestingly, what's Hollywood doing? What's the media doing? Glamorizing it? Publicizing it? Making it pretty? Making it seem appealing? I just read yesterday, the richest soccer player in the world making a million dollars a week after taxes, dating a trans lady, not really a lady. It's being glamorized. It's being made to look beautiful. It's being made to look fun and really and truly, what is it, friends? It's death. And it's easy for us to say that about the trans movement because traditionally, those in the church are not those that struggle with that. But friends, I might lovingly call out sexual boredom. I suspect the church struggles with that. Rather than being contented with the sexuality that God has given us, either single, which means you don't get to exercise it, or married, where you get to exercise it with one person, your spouse, consensually. Instead, I suspect that not just this church, I'm not talking about us only, but in the Reformed church in general, I suspect that's part of our dirty little secret is that we're not content with the way that God has designed our sexuality to operate. And so we watch shows that titillate and stimulate. We watch things on our computers. We read things we shouldn't. We act shamefully when people don't think that we do. And friends, I might lovingly remind you, for those that are in the midst of that, those sins you're doing in private are portrayed by the Lord as corpses rotting in the sun. It may look pretty now. It may feel good now. It may make you feel special, give you a sense of excitement to break the monotony of your miserable life. But friends, sin leads to death. The story doesn't stop. In fact, it gets a bit more bizarre. Verse 6, Behold! One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman. Now, it's important. It actually identifies these people at the end. Zimri, son of Salu, chief of father's house, and Cosby, 
these are both, <laughs> she's a princess, and Israel doesn't have a king yet, so he's not a prince, but he's a ruler of the land. These are actually leaders in the land. You have one of the rulers of Israel with one of the Midianite princesses, and what does he do? See, she's lovely. See, she's beautiful, verse 6, and takes her home and <laughs> before the entirety of the people of God. We'll generously say he might intend to marry her. We'll be generous. And you have this just unbelievable contrast in verse 6 of the people of God weeping before the presence of God, saying, we've sinned. We've sinned against you. We've, we have participated in death. And while that's happening, Zimri, the son of Salu, governed by his passions, takes a Midianite princess to his tent. And will again generously say makes a wife of her. And if Israel didn't get the meaning the first time that sin kills, they get it here. Phineas, one of the priests of God, grabs a spear, runs into the tent, and runs them through in the middle of their intimacy. Two people clean through. To point for an entire nation that sin kills. You don't play with it. It kills you. Over and over, it kills you. The little deaths before the big ones. In fact, the interesting thing is where we get to the end of the chapter. 14 and 15, we're told who these people are. What happens to the entire nation? The Lord spoke to Moses and said, go kill the Midianites. Their sin will kill them. Wipe the nation off the map. That's an amazing thing, you think about it. Because remember, the story started with the Moabite women. The Moabite women. Here we have actually a Midianite princess, a totally different nation. And she commits infidelity before the Lord, intermarriage, and what does the Lord do? He shows that sin kills, and he kills her entire nation because of it. Wow. Sin kills. I think, humbly, because the Reformed Church in America has done such a great job of speaking about the doctrines of grace, and we're going to get there in a moment, that we probably haven't done a very good job of talking about how bad sin actually is. We really haven't done that. We don't discuss, not at least in kind of brass tacks sort of terminology, that it kills you. 
We have described in the scriptures as, you know, our relationship with sin is supposed to be one of such rigid hatred that we hate even the garment stained with sin. We don't do that. Years ago, Nikki and I had a friend who's a nurse and was working in um, the blood bank for a day or for whatever, I forget, and um, had vials of blood in the centrifuge and somebody stuck something in the centrifuge and it blew a vial of blood in her face that was HIV positive blood in her eyes, in her nose, and in her mouth. It was the worst kind of exposure you can get without an actual direct injection. Now already some of you are like, your stomach just turned, didn't you? Because you understand what it feels like to hate the garment that's contaminated. You hate the idea of contaminated blood being in your mouth and being in your eyes and being in your nose. But yet we don't care about sin. We don't care. She was on antivirals for what, six months, nine months? She's fine. We just don't care. Obviously, there's good news. I mean, we're a Christian church. There's always good news. I guess until it's too late. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. What you have is a man making atonement for the people of God. In fact, actually, the Lord even says that in the following verses. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. You have a priest atoning for the people of God. You have a priest making the payment for the sin for the people of God. Now here, interestingly, it's killing other people. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. Praise God. Glory, hallelujah. That's not what church discipline looks like anymore. But instead, we have a much greater priest that has come through priest born of a virgin, raised where he spent as much of his time as he could in the tabernacle and in the temple, a priest who was tempted in every way imaginable by the devil himself after 40 days of fasting, a priest who lived a perfect life, never once sinned in any way, a priest who, in fact, interceded for others, a priest who died an unjust death on a cross, that priest who even conquered death and intercedes for us now. Here's the reality of why this is such a big deal. The Lord has designed for his church to be a hospital. That's what he's designed for it to be. And the session of this church leans into that idea. 
We know God's people are designed to be a hospital, which we understand means we will always have sick people. And we're happy about that. Well, until the second coming. And then there are no sick people. There's just resurrected and eternally dead ones. But it means that we as a church have to be willing and able to enter into this conversation. To think about a nation that's dying from our sexual sin and for us to be the safe haven. It means that we're going to have people that don't look like us. We're going to have people that don't act like us, people who don't believe like us, and that's okay. It means that if we're going to be a church that holds the line on issues like this, there will be people that hate us. In case you haven't figured it out, kind of the current American moment is to identify personhood with sexuality. It's to say that you are your sexuality, which is why you'll notice this increasingly push to sexualize children. Because if you are your sexuality, you have to be a sexual creature from the very beginning, so we have to sexualize children. It's absolutely horrible, awful. But if we're going to say that you are your sexuality as a nation, we then run into problems because for me to address or the church to address your sexuality is to address your personhood and to upset you. We're going to be hated as a church. But I suspect that if we as God's people at this moment in time are going to be the kind of people who believe Numbers 25, we're going to be the kind of people that need to be accustomed in having a conversation about shame. If you're older in the room, the younger people sitting around you have seen things that you cannot imagine. They've experienced things you cannot imagine. When I left youth ministry 15 years ago, the average exposure, first exposure to hardcore things was 11. That was 15 years ago. Grandparents in the room, your kids and your grandkids have seen things that you will never believe. We are a nation that is perverse. If we're going to be the church that proclaims forgiveness of sin, no matter what it is, we have to be a church that's willing to talk about shame. That the Lord heals even that. That the Lord forgives even that. You see, that's actually, I think, one of the great American dirty little secrets is that so much of our culture is simply an exercise in distraction 
so that we don't have to confront the shame that we carry with us every day. Friends, the answer is not distraction. The answer is not thinking less of the people who've done the things that you haven't. The answer isn't hating the other side. The answer is that there is a high priest who intercedes for his people and forgives all sin so that he can say that if you are in him, there is no condemnation. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you from the shame, the unrighteousness. Friends, if we're going to be the kind of church that is very salty salt and is very bright light in this part of the world, we're going to have to be a church that's able to talk about this. Now, I'm going to be up front. I'm, I'm southern through and through. This is going to require me to say words in public that I normally only spell, right? The things that in our kind of post-Victorian era we don't talk about in public. Certainly not in the pulpit. To be a kind of congregation that talks about sexual sin and is willing to practice forgiveness. Because it kills us otherwise. Might it be that we're not that church that is so heavily pushing against the temptations of the flesh in one way, against our alcohol, against gossip, against things like that, that all it takes is somebody to come up behind us and give us the tiniest little nudge and we fall into sexual sin. I'll end briefly with a couple of admonitions, very briefly. One, do not play with this. Friends, if you are struggling in any way with sexual sin, with sexual identity, with any of these things, do not play with it. It will kill you. Don't play with it. Run. It's our favorite illustration, Joseph, right? Just run. Just run. Run. Don't mess around. Two, talk to people. Talk to people. Theologian that in a lot of ways I don't agree with, but he's very famously said that confession isn't confession until it's corporate. His point being is it's easy to stop sinning when you're the only one who knows about it (laughs) because you'll do it again next week and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day. But three, friends, if we're going to be the kind of body that grows in this way, we're going to have to be the kind of body that's willing to actually forgive. And I'm going to be honest with you, this has been one of the hardest topics in this church's history in the past, hasn't it? A pastor prior to me excommunicated very public for this very issue. 
Could we forgive him? Will we forgive him? Will we be the kind of church that thinks the gospel of grace is big enough for even that? Oh, friends, live carefully and forgive freely. For sin kills, but Jesus doesn't.